You're listening to a sermon originally recorded by Schweitzer United Methodist Church in Springfield, Missouri. Check us out online at sumc.co. And if this sermon blessed you, be sure to share it with someone else. Thank you so much for listening. Now, on to the message. As a society, what should we do with useless people? Um, I think we should try to support them as much as possible. Give them a purpose. I think, yeah, I think we should under, like try to find them a purpose. I feel like everyone has a purpose, even if they don't know what it is, and I feel like we should help them. What do you do with useless people? Um, pretty much nothing, avoid them. Okay. We work with them and try to help them, take care of them. Yeah, I'd say about yeah. what she said. Yeah. I think we should help them become more useful. If there's ways they can work, if there's ways they can help other people or do things, I help. I think we should help them where we can, but not if they're being useless because of laziness, not encourage it. We should look at the people we deem useless and look at the sets of t- skills or talents they have and put them to use accordingly. A fish can swim all it's want, but if it's told its whole life it's supposed to climb a tree, it'll never do anything. What do we do with useless people? You know, do what you have to do and kind of just discard them. I don't necessarily believe that anybody is useless. Everybody has a reason, everybody has a purpose. We're all here for a reason. Nobody is personally useless. It's the goodness in your heart of what's inside of you that makes you the decency of a person. By what guidelines do we uh, determine that humanity? And it's, uh, if, uh, if a person doesn't want to be useful in society, if they don't want to contribute, then I, I honestly don't know. Good morning. That's a weird question, isn't it? Uh, Yeah, go ahead, just put it out there. It's a weird question. My wife, uh, she she read what I've uh, a manuscript of the sermon today. She said you need to give a a a disclaimer right up front. Say, hang with me. Don't just uh, don't just tune out because the question seems almost like we can't ask it because it is a question that's being asked. Maybe not in the world that you live in, but it is being asked in the world that we live in today. You may not have run into it yet, but it's a question that's being asked. In fact, over the next several weeks in this uh, series, God, I've got a question. We're going to be asking questions that, have, that we've noticed have been popping up in the culture to which we live in. And, and as we seek to, to raise the questions, to make sure that we're aware of the questions that are around us, then we're going to have a moment where we look at Scripture and see what God has to say to the questions that are being asked. Because they're questions that we all, we all deal with at some, at some point along the way. So, um, before I go any further, I want to ask you a question this morning. What are the things that keep you up at night or wake you up in the morning? See, as a, and this is not a rhetorical question, so I'd love to have some input from you. I don't have any problem going to sleep at night. But it's about 4, 4.30, 5 o'clock in the morning that some of the big questions of life start to, to flow in my mind and they start to wake me up. So what are the, some of the questions that keep you up at night or some of the things that keep you up at night? Um, go ahead. If you've got one, I'd love to hear it. What's for breakfast? Yeah, I figured somebody would have that question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Say that again. When will you fix this world? That's a good question. It's a good thing to ruminate on. 
Uh, say that one more time, Don. No, the answer to that is no. You didn't, you didn't get everything done yesterday. At least I've never encountered anybody that has. There's a couple of things that filter into my mind, a couple of numbers, actually, that wake me up, that stir me. Um, the numbers are 80 and 47. Uh, the first number, 80, comes from a, from a research company called Mission Insight. And Mission Insight is a, uh, is a group of people that have put together a, an, a pretty serious and in-depth study of neighborhoods all across America, p- places where people live. And that number, 80, represents the percentage of people within our community, actually within a three-mile uh, three circumference of Schweitzer, 80% of the people that live close to us have no real connection to a local church or to a place of faith, to a community of faith. So sometimes when we're in meetings over in the outreach center, I look out the window and I think about 8 out of 10 cars that drive past the campus of Schweitzer are disconnected from a community of faith. Disconnected in some ways, I think, uh, from from all that Jesus is wanting them to be and do and be a part of. And so I think about that percentage of of 80, and I begin to think about what could we do as a church, what could we do as a community of faith to reach out to people, to connect, to engage with people, who in some ways all of us have the same questions about purpose, about direction, about where we're going, about the big things in life. How can we as a church put ourselves in the, in the place where they're asking their questions. How can we engage, connect? And how can we share the story, the life-transforming story of Jesus Christ? And I'm sure a number of people in that 80% have faith to some level, uh, some level in, in Christ. But I'm sure that Jesus would love to draw them closer to himself and to have them be a part of a, of a community. So that's one of the numbers. That's one of the things that wakes me up at night, that, that has me thinking. The other number is the number that I heard in the past three to four months. The number is 47%. I first came across this number when I was listening to an to a interview given by Dan Bisamoyo. Now I heard the interview in 2017 after the election. The interview was actually something she gave in late October or early November of 2016. And she was being interviewed about a number of things. And, and the interviewer asked her, um, she's an economist, teaches at MIT, born in Zambia. She said, uh, Dambisa, uh, how is technology going to shape the world of jobs in the future? Because jobs, if you remember, in, in the election cycle of 2016, was a significant issue. And Dambisa Moyo said, <clears throat> well, uh, technology is going to shape the future of jobs dramatically. She said, in fact, if if we go back to a study that was done in 2013 that came out of Oxford St. Martin's, there's a suggestion, a suggestion within that study that within the next 10 to 20 years, 47% of the jobs in America will disappear. Uh, 47% of the jobs that are in America will disappear. Now, if you migrate that, she didn't mention the, the statistic that would impact the world globally, but some global estimates put that to the effect that if 47% of the jobs in America were, would disappear in the next 10 to 20 years, that probably something between 70 and 90% of the jobs in the Pacific Rim would disappear. 
Now, think about that for just a moment. Let that sit in. Uh, in, a, in another book I've been reading recently, they had a list of, of the number of jobs, or at least the probability that jobs would disappear over the next 10 to 20 years. And let's see that slide. You start looking down that slide and seeing all kinds of, of different jobs, different vocations, places where people uh, live and work. This, this data comes from a book called Homo Deus, and we'll, we'll talk about that writer and, and that book in a little bit more in detail. Lots of jobs there. A year ago, I, um, I happened across one of my favorite topics, tractors, and uh, a new video that came out from Case New Holland, which Case New Holland is the corporate manufacturer of Case IH and New Holland branded tractors. And both of these tractors are moving in a field. You don't see that, but it's a, it's a capture from a video. They're both moving in a field. You'll notice that there's not a person in the New Holland tractor, in the nice bluish-purple one. And on the, on the red tractor, there's no seat or no steering wheel. Both of those tractors are at work on a farm in Kentucky, a thousand-acre farm in Kentucky. And they've, they've worked an entire season. And neither one of them have people who are driving. They're being driven by algorithms, by data, by computers. Now I look at that and that picture makes me sad because I love to drive a tractor. I love the, the aspect of tractoring. I call it a spiritual discipline and it, it matters to me. It's good for my own soul. Some of you won't understand it, but you've got other things. Some of you love to play golf. You love to go fishing. You love to be on the water. You know what that's like. But here, this is you see the picture of changing in the future. I saw another picture recently uh, pointing to this direction of, of what it might look like. This picture came out of Dubai. And Taylor Likes wants me to say that, you know, you've seen the movie RoboCop, meet the RoboCop. Because this is a robotic police officer on duty today in Dubai. A robotic police officer. <coughs> number of the jobs that were listed on that list previously looked to be mostly in the service sector, the service industry. But one of the things that we're beginning to see and know is that every industry, every industry is about to be targeted in a way that we've never seen before. One of the, one of the videos that I came across which was titled, it's a YouTube video, you can put it in your phone or look it up later, said, humans need not apply, said, we know what it was like to put mechanical muscles into motion and replace human muscles. Soon we're going to be at a place where we're putting, putting intellectual muscles into play. And we're going to be challenging the intellect of the human person. We're going to be challenging the intellect of the human person so that every, every industry is going to have the integration of computers and algorithms like we've never seen before. And algorithms really may begin to displace a whole number of professions. In fact, the professions of doctors and lawyers and teachers and pastors are all deeply going to be affected. 
one of the uh, industries <clears throat> that's dear to my heart because it's dear to one of my sons is, is the industry of, of making music and writing songs, composing songs. And a couple weeks ago, I was listening to an NPR story, and they said that by 2020, by 2020, most of the music that you hear that comes in a soundtrack that's played behind a movie will be written and produced and made by a computer somewhere in the world. Think about that. How is the world changing? How fast is the world changing? Everett Rogers, who's a, well, he was a, a thinker who talked about how change comes and meets us. And he, he, he talked about the speed of innovation in a society and in a culture. He gave us the, the language of an S-curve. Some of you who are familiar with innovation, you, that S-curve is in your mind. You, you know, you've, you've dealt with it a number of times. And, and the S-curve gave us the idea that change takes time. That first you've got, you've got innovators and then you've got early adopters. And then a long ways away, 10, 15, 20 years, 30 years, you've got the laggards, right? And the laggards will finally, they'll either catch up or they won't even care about catching up. It's like, go on ahead of us, have fun. We're just going to be happy with, with what we've got. But Rod Rear, a writer for the Dallas Morning News and somebody who's written a number of other books, in fact, he, his latest book is called The Benedictine Option, said, we're in a new phase of change where instead of having an S-curve, Dreer suggests that we're in a place where we have, uh, well, he, he, he uses this phrase, liquid modernity. That is to say that change is happening so fast and so fluidly that sometimes we adopt it, sometimes we don't see it, sometimes we don't notice it, and it's happening all around us. And so that the things that would normally give some sense of solidity, some sense of normal normality, don't have time to adapt so that our customs, our institutions, our forms are all kind of reacting and responding. Now, I don't know if you have a smartphone. I, I, I'm a laggard when it comes to phones. I still have an old slider phone, and I've got the keypad where I can punch stuff in. But a number of you have smartphones, and some of you, you've got a number of apps on your smartphones. Pastor Jim, do you have the Panera app on your smartphone? It's okay. You can confess. You're taking, you can't take the fifth. I think you do. You do, Right? And, and the Panera app lets you do what? It lets you order what you'd like to eat at Panera. It, it lets you send in, this is what I'm, I'm hungering for, and I'll be over at this time to pick it up. Is that right? Is that pretty much it? Um, yeah, thanks. But sometimes you have to go over there. But sometimes you do, yeah, you do. And you love to go over there. <clears throat> okay. Anyway, this, this Panera app and all kinds of other apps that come to our smartphones are technology that we, we embrace because we see some of the real benefit of it. We love, we love the ease that it gives us. We love the capacity to put, that, to put our order in and to go pick, up, pick it up when we're ready for it. And yet, have you thought about how that app changes the world in which the people at Panera are working in? Have you thought about 
how the integration of that app, your input, just like your input at a grocery store when you go through, you know, every grocery store used to have checkout people, right? And now the number of people working in a checkout line is reduced to just a few. When you go to Panera, the number of people who will be taking your order, in fact, is going to go down is going to go down dramatically to a place of zero before long. Integration. We love it because it affords us a lot of things, and yet there's all kinds of change that it's pointing to. It's indicating that's moving along the way. So there's this question that comes up, that pops up. Um, a number of people on the video, the opening video, began to ask that question. And I don't think they really understood the ground upon which we stand. They tended to at, answer the question, what do we do with useless people? As if, what do we do with pe people who aren't being productive in society and culture today? Uh, Yuri Noah uh, Harari is a writer, thinker, teacher in history, and also beginning to think about the future. He's written a book called Homo Deus. And in that book, he asked the question, which was really the formation for this question and this, the sermon topic today, what do you do with useless people? Because Harari is beginning to say that in the future, there is going to be a large class of people with no use economically or politically. And it's not simply going to be because because they don't have the motivation, they don't have the intention, they don't desire to do something. But it's simply going to be because they aren't at a place where they can outmatch or outdo what the mechanical and intellectual muscles can do in the world. And so the question, so what do you do with humans? What do you do with us? Comes into play. Harari agrees in some way with Karl Marx. Karl Marx many, many years ago said this, the production of too many useful things results in too many useless people. Harari's answer to that question, some ways with the angst that Marx projected, was that, well, we may not do anything. Or we may just sit around. There may not be anything for us to do. Somebody else, <clears throat> this uh, another quote from a lady by the name of her first name is, well, oh, yeah, I, I think about useless people, I think about decaffeinated coffee. It's not, not real helpful to you. Thanks. Thanks for that meme. Let's go to the next one. Thank you. The next, the next uh, slide is from uh, a lady who says, well, maybe what we're going to do is just go shopping. You know, like, if you don't have anything to do, maybe the thing that will be out there for us to do is simply to go shopping. And so we'll become the ultimate consumeristic society. We won't be able to produce anything, or at least not produce in a way that will keep up with anybody else. So we'll just shop. But even in that motif, if we pay attention to the news items, we're not going to have any stores to go to. You'll just have to go online to do all your shopping. And so will we ever have places where we interact, where we intersect with other people? That is, that's a serious question. There is a, there's another suggestion that we're going to have to retrain 
a whole host of people. And so one of the phrases that's been popping up, um, Mark Zuckerberg, who founded Facebook and who gave a commencement speech at Harvard this last year, uh, talked about this concept of universal basic income. I don't know if you've heard this word or if you've come across this, but universal basic income is essentially saying that there is coming a point, and, and I had another conversation that, that said the folks in Silicon Valley see all of this technology coming, and they see this innovation coming. And so the largest conversation in Silicon Valley is how do we get to a place where we can implement universal basic income, which means that we send, or the government or some entity sends money to everybody in the country. A certain amount. So that if you're at a place and you lose your job because of innovation, integration of those things, you can then go and be retrained and you'll have support for basic necessities. The question is how do you do that across the globe, because if you have a 40% elimination of jobs in this country, and if you have 90, 70 to 90% across the Pacific Rim, how do you put universal basic income around the world? How do you make it really universal? And then the question is, what is basic? Zuckerberg um, talked about universal basic income even this last week. <clears throat> he was quoted as, is reaffirming his belief that we must explore that discussion. Dan B. Samoyo, the economist that I pointed to earlier, she said, there are a number of people who are thinking about this 47% and they're scared mightily. She took a different perspective. She said, you know, when we moved from the horse and buggy era to the era of cars, there were all kinds of things that would come along to us that we wouldn't see coming. There were all kinds of, of endeavors that we couldn't even imagine back in the early part of the 1900s that have come into view. So she takes a very hopeful view that whatever is ahead of us, whatever is ahead of us will be very good, will be, will be very helpful to us, and that we don't need to be uh, alarmed, if you will. Rod Dreher who I've, I've referred to earlier and who wrote a book, just a new book out, called The Benedictine Option. He was speaking about a book, this book by uh, Yuval Noah Harari called Homo Deus. And Dreer describes um, Harari's book as a good, bad book. He said it's good because for many of us, we go through life with our heads down, trying to trying to deal with the questions and the challenges that we face right now. Drew said, Harari's book is good in that it helps us lift up our heads to see what's on the horizon, to see what's out in the future, to see what's coming. He calls it a bad book because Harari is fully in, enmeshed with it and he loves it and he's a materialist in many ways. And there's a sense of loss about what humanity is, or a loss in the discussion about what humanity is and what it's called to be. And this is why Dreer calls it a bad book. But at the end of the day, this is where the question really comes down to. Not only what do you do with useless people, but what does it mean to be human in the first place? What does it mean to be a person 
to be a, a human being. History is full of moments when there were people who looked at other people and said there are useless people in our midst. And in those moments, there are great tragedies and travesties. Significant amounts of evil are done when, when some people look at others and they say that they're useless. Theologically, when we look at Scripture, when we listen to the stories of God, the thing that we encounter there is that nobody is, in fact, useless, but everybody is made. Bearing the very image of God themselves. And so, theologically, we'd even go beyond the point. I love one of the things here on this sign. A maker fun factory, created by God and built for a purpose. Oftentimes, we think about that built for a purpose as the thing that gives us value. But in fact, theologically, we would say even before we're created for a purpose, we're simply created by God. And that act of being created by God and having the breath of God in us, having the, the wind of God, the spirit of God hovering over us, makes each and every one of us somebody of great and eternal and inestimable value. Nobody can put a price tag or nobody can put a real weight to how much you matter to how much I matter, to how much every human being matters and is important and is loved, is valued. And valued, in fact, not because of what they do or what they produce or what they might do or produce, but they're valued simply because they are, simply because they exist. Then, part of the, part of the theological part of this um, script and the story that comes to us from Scripture is that not only are we valued, but that God, in fact, does make us with a sense of purpose. And he shares his image with us. He shares his capacity with us. And one of the things that we point to about God is that he's a creator. And so with, and with us and for us, he gave us the capacity, the ability to create. And so it's, it's right up here that not only are we built for a purpose, but we have the capacity to be creative Entities, to be creative people, to have this sense of creative engine, this creative drive, this desire and passion within us. The uh, question, then theologically, if that's the story of Scripture, how does that move us to a place where we engage the conversation about this emerging world where artificial intelligence is a story that you hear about every week, that you can read in the newspapers about every week. There was a prophet in the 580s, 590s B.C. His name was Jeremiah. Jeremiah lived at a time when the world was changing fast and furious. And the world that had been known in Israel had been taken away because the Babylonians had swept in and they'd uh, turned over the temple. They'd taken all of the bright lights. They'd profiled the people of Israel. And everybody that they profiled as bright lights, they took away from Jerusalem. 
They took her out of Judah and they took to their own country. They put them to work, not only being slave labor, but they put them to work in all kinds of places because they wanted to have the best and the brightest contributing to, to what the empire of Babylon would look like. And so this best and this brightest, they had a conversation in Babylon. They said to one another, how long is this going to last? This change that we've undergone, how long will, will it last? How long are we going to be here? And how long are we going to be away from what we've known? And there were people in their midst who said, well, don't worry about it. You're going to be able to go back home soon. And the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, the prophet. And he said, I want you to send a message to the people in Babylon. And here's what he said. And this is in Jeremiah 29. This is what the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of Israel, says to all the captives that he's exiled, that have been exiled to Babylon from Jerusalem. Build homes and plant to stay. Plant gardens and eat the food they produce. Marry and have children. Then find spouses for them so that they may have many grandchildren. Multiply. Do not dwindle away. And work for the peace and prosperity of that city where I sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, for its welfare will determine your welfare. Jeremiah, knowing that the people in Babylon are having this conversation, hears from the Lord and he writes this down. And he sends this message. Plan to stay there. Be active. In fact, integrate or, or uh, start up your own activity engine within who you are. Be an active participant, not simply of the past that you remember, but be an active participant of the future into which you're going to have to live in. He uses these words, these very active and precise words, build and plant, have families, multiply, pray. As I think about those words, I think a number of, there's a number of takeaways for me that, that I'm getting from that. One of the things I think that's there is this, this in, uh, instruction to us. Invest in the community. Invest in the community in such a way that you build places where people can meet and talk and they can actually engage with, with one another. I told you earlier on that one of the numbers that is in my mind is that number 80% of people who drive by this, this place and they don't have an active connection to a community of faith. The more that we integrate all kinds of technology in our lives, the more we're going to be separated from one another. Our human activity and our human interaction is going to be depleted. One of the things that Jeremiah tells an earlier audience, and I think comes back to us today, is that as you think about the future, you have to think about where are there going to be places where people connect with one another? And how are they going to know the touch of another human being? And how are they going to know a sense of community? what it is to belong to a place and to a people. Jeremiah says, build and plant, have families. Jeremiah also says this, encourage creativity. You can't help but be creative when you make something like a garden, right? If any of you garden, you know that gardening is an art. It's not a, it's not a perfect science. I've got some beautiful um, zucchini bushes at my house. And, and they're looking great until there's a worm or some kind of worm that's been coming up and eating them out from the, the underneath side. And all of a sudden, a beautiful plant collapses. And I've been thinking about, how do you solve that problem of that worm? 
That's a question that really is there to, to start a creative question, a, a solving a problem in my own mind. This week at Vacation Bible School, the kids are going to encounter this reality that God is somebody who, who makes things and that God is somebody who's created them and that God is somebody that's given us the capacity to create. As you think about your days, as you think about the days of people that are around you, do you see people being creative? Or do you see people being watchers? How about yourself? Are you watching the world? Are you getting out there in some place and creating something new? God invites us to be creators. God also invites us to be people who pray. Last week, we shared with a number of you, this little booklet, To Sow for a Great Awakening. And if you weren't here last week, if you'd like one of these little booklets, I think we have more at the Welcome Center. I'd encourage you to do that. But at the end of the text that Jeremiah, we read from Jeremiah, he says, pray for the peace of this place. And to sowing for a great awakening, there's this phraseology that comes into, into place. It said, we're invited to pray, not with prayers that are humdrum or not with prayers that are every day but we're invited to pray with a sense of travailing prayer with a sense of longing for God when I think about the future I think about a place where I don't have a lot of answers for what's gonna what's coming around the corner I think about that 47 percent and I agree with the Ambisa Moyo I think we live in a time where we don't have a clue as to what's around the corner but while I can't see around that corner I think God does and I think God invites us to be people who pray, not only for ourselves, but for the entirety of the world. For a great awakening about who God is and what God means for us to be people who are made in his image. God invites us to pray with deep, longing prayer. And then underneath all of that conversation, I think there's one other piece. I think Jeremiah would say this. God has sent you a message because you engaged in deep conversation about the future. And I think God would say to us today, you can't go through life, you can't go through this moment in time with your head down to what's happening and to what's coming. Each and every one of us have to come to a place where we lift up our eyes and we see what's out in the future. Even if we don't know how to answer it, we see what's coming and we begin to enter into places of real significant conversation. And we'll even take up ideas that we're unsure of or we may even, in fact, don't like. But we'll do it because we know that the future is the place where we have to live and are, we're going to live. And we have to enter into those places. I'd invite you, if you're willing, if you're up to that task, if you hear that calling, to join us on August 16th. For out in the Fellowship Center, August 16th, Pastor Jake and I are going to lead a discussion on this book called Homo Deus, written by Yuval Noah Harari. And we're going to have a discussion on that book. And we may, in fact, even have a discussion on another book called The Benedictine Option by Rod Dreher. There are books that are speaking into the future about what the future may look like and how we approach it. There are books that speak from very different ends of, ends of the spectrum, but they both speak to the question about the future, and they speak to what it is to be human made in, in the image of God. So if you're interested... You've got about a month.
Can you read a book? You can read a book. Can you read two books? I don't know. I'm going to read two books. And if you can't read two books, then go on online and watch YouTube, and you can get all the stuff there. But come and be a part of the conversation because it matters for the future of where we're headed. The psalmist, psalmist said to the people of God, the psalmist said, where does your help come from? said, look to the hills. And really, the idea of look to the hills was a question. Because the psalmist said, does your help come from the hills? Does your help come from a leader who's going to come around the bend and be your rescuer? Does your help come from some new invention or some new technology that's going to come up over the hill? The psalmist says, where does your help come from? Your help, O Israel, comes from the Lord. So friends, I don't know how you've been looking into the future. But I would say that as you look into the future, where does your help come from? Help comes from the Lord. So don't be afraid, but look to him. Kind Father, thank you for this time and this place. Give us ears to hear the call that you have for us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.